Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you for tuning in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Today is Wednesday, July 21st, and this next hour we study the inspired and true Word of God and put on our Christ goggles in Nehemiah chapter 6. Today's text reminds us, I think it reminds us of Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It definitely is something where we see in Nehemiah being a compassionate and generous uh, layperson, a cupbearer, serving the people of Israel. And also, at the same time, he is steadfast in the faith, steadfast while being tempted with evil. And this is a great witness to us and a great witness to all Christians that we will live in his grace. The gifts are ready, ready for you. A special thanks to Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's word, we welcome, uh, welcome for the first time with us Pastor Clint Poppy of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor Poppy, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Well, thanks for having me. It's a great honor. Pastor, you're a, you're a regular guest on KFEO on various programs, but this is our first time together, so you can, can you introduce yourself and the work of the Saints of Good Shepherd? Uh, sure. Uh, Pastor Clint Poppy, Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm uh, born and raised in Nebraska, been here at Good Shepherd uh, just over 24 years. We're a uh, fairly large congregation, as, uh, as you would uh, call them in the Missouri Synod. I've got an associate pastor, and we're uh, just getting ready to install our 20th vicar. So the congregation's been in the vicarage program for quite some time. Uh, married, um, wife Barb, we uh, just celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary, three sons, seven grandkids, and uh, just preaching the gospel and loving life. This is great to hear. And and I'm assuming that you're an Iowa State fan. Is that true? Or where you are? In your <laughs> yeah, well, you just lost all the Husker listeners right there. <laughs> They're gone. But, <laughs> yeah, I, Iowa State does not uh, does, does not even register on the scale. However, you know, everybody in Nebraska is a uh, Husker fan, every sport. And uh, we are well known for our uh, bowling team and our rifle team we generally beat army navy and air force with rifle shooting that uh, either will make you proud or scared but uh, a former member of our congregation uh, lance leipold is now the head football coach for the kansas jayhawks yeah right so i am not only a husker fan but i am a kansas jayhawk football fan and i'm really looking forward to him turning the program around this is great this is great you see what happens is when be prior to our broadcast pastor poppy and i would talk football and i think we could have gone another two hours so we better watch ourselves before we go too far (laughs) (laughs) but pastor as we look at nehemiah chapter six this morning and dig into the script scriptures. Can you begin our time in prayer? Sure. Let us pray. Lord God, bless your word wherever it is proclaimed. Make it a word of power and peace to convert those not yet your own 
and to confirm those who have come to saving faith. May your word pass from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip, and from the lip to the life, that as you have promised, your word may achieve the purpose for which you send it. Through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen to take away the sin of the world. Amen. Amen. Pastor, we come to chapter 6 of Nehemiah, and it chapter 5 was a lot of fun. We had Pastor John Shank from Trinity Edwardsville with us yesterday, and it was so wonderful to talk about the generosity and compassion of Nehemiah and clearly how the foundation of that is in the Lord and how can we not look at Christ and then therefore at the same time want to be compassionate and generous when we look at the cross. And so chapter 6 brings to us once again the temptation and conspiracies. It's like a soap opera, really, when we get to chapter 6. What, what When you look at um, the, the chapters previous to our time, what kind of highlights do you have or introductory thoughts? Well, you know, it's interesting. When you, uh, <laughs> when you called asking to uh, do this time together on the book of Nehemiah, um, I'm probably like most pastors, and I said, oh boy, any book of the Bible except Ezra and Nehemiah, because these are two of the least known books mm. in uh, in our churches. Um, they're rarely studied in great detail at our seminaries, and you know, Nehemiah, I think, comes up once in the three-year series, yeah. but not at all in the one-year series. Most people are just ignorant for what's going on. And so we just skip over these uh, these books because they're irrelevant. And Luther didn't have a whole lot to say. He said more on Ezra than on Nehemiah. But uh, And then about five years ago, when we got a president in the White House that talked a lot about building a wall, all of a sudden Nehemiah is in the news <laughs> because so many of our evangelical friends started uh, – studying Nehemiah about building a wall that has absolutely nothing to do with what's going on in the book of uh, Nehemiah. Mm -hmm. So uh, to be able to study this book and to bring some of these things that uh, are in God's word to light is, uh, is an amazing thing. You know, the, the first six chapters, and there's a decided break after chapter six in Nehemiah, the first six chapters are really dedicating dedicated to the rebuilding of the wall and uh what wall are we talking about what's going on um in uh, 586 the temple is destroyed by the babylonians and uh, this this came 140 years after the um uh, destruction of israel in uh, 722 and so the people of Jerusalem, uh, the Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes, they're feeling pretty cocky about themselves. They continued to uh, forget and abandon God's word and God's worship. God sent his judgment. The people are carried away. And then there was a um, uh, kind of a political thing that was going on. Persia and Greece and Egypt are just this three-way battle that's going on and uh, the people in and around Jerusalem are kind of caught up in that. And there was a peace treaty that was signed in uh, 449 BC, the peace of, I don't know how to pronounce it, Kalios or Kalios. Mm -hmm. And that really set the stage for um, 
rebuilding not only the wall, but uh, for rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and bringing inhabitants back in. The uh, the, the uh, head guy, uh, president, king, emperor, whatever you want to call him, Artaxerxes, is uh, the guy who appoints both Ezra and Nehemiah. And Artaxerxes, number one, the first, uh, the whole book of Nehemiah is here in uh, in his reign. And so Nehemiah is uh, the governor of uh, Jerusalem and that general area for 12 or 13 years. He goes to the king after he hears the reports of the uh, miserable state that Jerusalem is in, especially the wall. They can't protect themselves. He goes to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes uh, graciously uh, gives him permission to go back. He goes back to uh, rebuild the wall. He kind of does so secretly to kind of check things out and uh, begins the process. And uh, there are forces from without and within that are working really, really hard to keep Nehemiah from his appointed task. And in chapter 5, we see that um, opposition from within the uh, disheartened people. But the bulk of the first four chapters are the uh, descriptors of the opposition from without. And we're, uh, we're introduced to those uh, that trio, that unholy <laughs> trinity of bad characters in Nehemiah 6 verse 1. Thank you for that um, that perspective, the the historical background with the peace treaty of 449. That really makes a lot more sense of why this would even be allowed, because it doesn't seem to make sense. And I understand the Persians were different than the Babylonians. I understand all that, but it really is helpful to know of the political world that this would have been in the good interest of Persia and Greece and Egypt and everybody involved to have Jerusalem, well, re uh, reestablished, not just obviously clearly not for the people to be able to worship. That was not necessarily their goal, but it had to do with political figures and political thoughts. Any other introductory thoughts before we get dig into the text? No, I think, I think that probably sets the stage uh, fairly well. We, we do have a lot of opposition for uh, the rebuilding of the wall that comes early on in the book that really kind of comes to a head in chapter six. And so I think we'll probably be able to pull some of those things out from the earlier chapters as we go. Awesome. So let's let's dig into the text. We'll open up your Bibles and let's go. Reminder to our listeners, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Nehemiah chapter six. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had to set up the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Haka Ephraim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Now, Pastor, I heard a, <laughs> I read an article on this, and they said, oh, no, you know, oh, no means oh, no. So it sets the stage in these first two verses that this looks kind of good, but it isn't good. What are your thoughts? Yeah, we have uh, the uh, culmination of a lot of things that uh, kind of come to a head now in chapter six, and 
you have this this um, three part alliance that have uh, worked together to uh, to keep the wall. It's not so much about the wall, but what the wall represents. And Jerusalem has no protection. It has no wall because Jerusalem has no wall. Most of the people in Jerusalem have moved out into the countryside so uh, for safety. And you see Jerusalem getting repopulated toward the end of the book. But uh, you have this... Uh, uh, Sanballat, or however you pronounce his name, he's the uh, governor of Samaria, and Tobiah, which is a little more common name, he's the leader of the Ammonites, and then you have this uh, uh, Geshem the Arab, which um, <laughs> that tells you who he is and who he's aligned with. You've got these three forces, Samaria, the Ammonites, and the uh, the Arabs in that area. They don't want Jerusalem to be a player. They don't want Jerusalem to be protected. And so almost from day one, they have sought out to uh, discourage and uh, keep the wall from being rebuilt around Jerusalem. In uh, chapter 2, they uh, we see the opposition from these three guys begin. First, they just made fun of Nehemiah, mm -hmm. and uh, then they threatened that uh, the rebuilding of the wall was some kind of a treasonous act. They made fun of the workers, and when none of those things worked, then they uh, plotted physical harm, plotted attack against the workers. They uh, did everything they could to plant internal discord and dissent among the people of God and especially the workers. And now when we get to chapter six, it's almost, and we were talking about football before, it's, uh, it's almost uh, two-minute warning time or time for the Hail Mary pass. That's exactly what's going on here. These are last-ditch efforts. They see that the wall is being constructed. It's nearing completion, and they're trying to throw a Hail Mary to stop it any way, shape, or form. And like I said, it is an oh-no moment that the, we don't <laughs> do this now. It's not going to work. And even though the gates are relatively significant um, structures to put up, when the wall is built, I mean, all you got to put the door on, and then it is over. And it's funny because, hey, let's just get together, have some coffee. Let's go meet in our favorite little nook there in Ono. And then it says these just simple words, but they intended to do me harm. So obviously the intentions are not pure. Pastor, any other thoughts on those two verses? Well, the, the significance of uh, the safety inside of Jerusalem, the safety inside the walls, even though they're not, fully complete yet there is safety and security inside jerusalem inside the walls of jerusalem why do they want to lure him outside of the walls well because there's not safety there's not security we get him outside the city gates and uh, who knows what can happen to him and uh, that should probably plant in our minds someone else who um, had uh, harm come to him outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Mm, that's a very, thank you for that connection. And this is a reminder to our listeners, as we look at uh, all of the Old Testament, we speak about putting on our Christ goggles, and it's not necessarily always a, a simple way, but you cannot stop and think, wow, they're obviously 
Um, there is a connection there because when you look at the wall, you look at the gates, you look at I am I am the door, Jesus says, I am the gate. And here, once again, outside those city walls, they want them to go where they think that they can have the victory, which is obviously connects us to Christ once again. Thank you for doing that, Pastor. I think I'm ready to move on. You want to go to the next few verses, Pastor? Sure. Let's do it. Three and four. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. I'm going to stop there because I think as we're, you know, we're talking sports quite a bit. I think right now it's Nehemiah 4, the enemies 0. What do you think of that scorecard? <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, it's interesting too. You know, at first... Even though Nehemiah knows what's going on, they know he knows that they want to lure him outside the city so that they can do him harm or kill him. Uh, he's very, very diplomatic. He he doesn't want to escalate the matter. He doesn't want to pick a fight. He's very, very diplomatic. And each time they request, he sends back a nice diplomatic response. No, I'm too busy. I've got work to do. And um, if you if you want to look at that uh, four to nothing thing, uh, now it's fourth down. Now now uh, the hail mary is the only option that's left, and uh, they're they're getting very very desperate. The question is, for our listeners, I think it's time for you to put a score scorecard down to see how many times Pastor Poppy and I can use football analogies for this <laughs> particular <laughs> chapter of Scripture. We've <laughs> only just begun. <laughs> So it is fourth down, uh, two minutes is left, they're about ready to do the Hail Mary, and now we get to even more so in verse 5, and I'll, we'll go all the way down to verse 9, as it just gets better and better. In the same way, Sam Ballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands would drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, there's a, there's a number of things that I really want us to highlight here because there's some commandments broken, there's other issues, and then at the end, there's a wonderful God moment. So, Pastor, where do you want to begin in these verses? Well, the, uh, the fifth attempt is noticeably different from the first four. The first four are, you know, diplomatic correspondence. You've got sealed letters that are going back and forth. But right off the bat here in verse five, we have the fifth time that is sent, but it says with an open letter in his hand. Now you might just um, glance by that and not uh, pick up on the significance of that, but this open letter means that this is not some sealed correspondence. Hmm. This is um, 
in front of God and everybody. This is an open charge. This is a public accusation. This uh, this unsealed letter that comes means that everybody knows. And so the charges that are here are public charges and public accusations. And these public charges and public accusations is that Nehemiah is a liar. Nehemiah said that he was doing this for Artaxerxes under the uh, motivation of the one true God for the benefit of the people. And now these accusations are that Nehemiah is just like every other political leader. He wants to make a name for himself. He wants to make himself the king. He's even recruited false prophets to run around and uh, support him. And so this public accusation is really, really serious. And the diplomacy is by the wayside. The gloves are off. We're going public. It's all over the Internet. And now the ball is in Nehemiah's court. How are you going to react? How are you going to respond? So what are the accusations that, that he has or that they have upon, um, upon Nehemiah? I mean, this is clearly an Eighth Commandment issue. Not only are they just letting it out there, um, but also what is the accusations? Well, that he wants to be the king, that he is, uh, that Nehemiah himself wants to set himself up as uh, king of Judah or king of Jerusalem, that uh, he is betraying the trust of Artaxerxes, that he has lied with regard to his intentions, that he's doing this for the good of the people, uh, the children of Israel, that he is coercing all of these things to happen by setting up prophets to say not what God says, but to say what he wants done. And all of these accusations are, um, you know, uh, they're the breaking news on uh, whatever, whatever news channel you watch. It's public. Mm-hmm. It's open. And they are hoping that Nehemiah is going to start talking about the specific charges, do something to give credence to these charges, they're not expecting Nehemiah to act the way he ultimately does. So in verse 8, so what they're, what they're wanting is basically for him to, uh, to mess up with his words and him to say something wrong. And they're obviously trying to make him afraid. Like that's their ultimate goal, that they want to hurt him and they want him to be afraid of them. And so they, it's kind of now go back to another football analogy. They want to, they want, they want to be a, they want to be a press conference where he admits that this was some of his attentions. Is that how you would talk about it? Of course, I'm thinking football here, but they want, they, they want a press conference, or he wants a press conference. How would you talk about that? Yes, you know, if if I say, uh, "Have you stopped beating your wife?" Ah, okay. Uh, how you respond to that? Uh, there, it's it's a it's a gotcha kind mm-hmm. of a question, mm-hmm. okay. and yeah. that's what's going on here. They they made this public accusation in such a way that not only do they want to discourage Nehemiah, they want to discourage the hundreds of people who are working so so feverishly and so faithfully to rebuild the wall, to put up the gates, to rebuild Jerusalem. They want everyone, uh, give you another football analogy, they want everyone to lose momentum mm. 
in the task that they've been working so hard and so feverishly for. And uh, again, this is their last ditch effort. And how does he, how, I mean, he handles it well. They don't, they don't want him to respond in this way, but how does he respond? Well, Nehemiah basically ends all the diplomacy right here. And uh, he says, you're liars. You've been liars from the beginning. There is absolutely zero evidence or zero fact. In a sense, put up or shut up. You have invented this. And as the EIV says in verse eight, you have invented these things out of your own mind. And uh, if you want to play that analogy, uh, they are out of their mind with these accusations. And anybody who knows Nehemiah and anybody who knows the work that has gone on knows that these are fabrications. How easy is it? for us to get caught up in such political realms. I mean, not necessarily, I'm not saying if you're a politician per se, but just in general life that you have something like this happen, you can get tripped up on your words. How easy is it for us to break this eighth commandment and cause harm to our neighbor and not explain everything in the kindest way? How would you talk about this? Because I found this an interesting part of, of scripture where we can definitely make a one-to-one to our daily walk with the Lord and how that connects. So what, what are your thoughts on what this means for us in our lives? Well, how easy is it to break the Eighth Commandment? Uh, it's as easy for the sinner to break the Eighth Commandment as it is for him to breathe mm. or to sweat on a hot July day. Uh, this is our, our nature, the old Adam or the old Eve that lives and dwells inside of us. And when someone makes a charge, when someone makes an accusation, it doesn't even have to be against us personally. If someone makes a charge or an accusation on Facebook or Twitter or some other social media outlet, if somebody says something against my beloved Huskers or against your beloved Gophers, don't we feel like we have to come to the defense? You know, immediately we lose all of our common sense. Immediately we go into attack mode. And so often, This is Satan at work. False charges, false accusations, they're a part of the fallen world, and they are certainly a part of social media. And uh, to, to be aware of our neighbor's reputation, to choose our words wisely, to think before we speak, these are gifts of the Spirit. Uh, the godly gift of self-control from Galatians 5 is in very, very short supply in, uh, in the Christian church and in our world today. And these are, these are certainly, um, if you want to look at it this way, leadership lessons that we can learn from Nehemiah's response right here. He speaks the truth. He doesn't get down in the gutter with them. He speaks the truth. He defends his own name. And in so doing, he defends the name of God and the name of all the people who've been working on the gate. And he verse, when he ends verse 9, I want to touch on that. But first, now we need to take our break. We are studying Nehemiah chapter 6 with Pastor Clint Poppy, and we will be right back. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches? 
where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church, free of charge, to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. And welcome back. We are studying Nehemiah chapter 6, and we have really had a, well, first of all, for those who are counting, I want to find out, send us an email at kfuo at kfuo.org, who's actually counting the number of football references we have. I don't have a number yet, but I'm sure we're almost up to 10. So we'll see how many we get here, Pastor, by the end of our time. But you've really hit it on the head, and I wrote this down because I think it's important for us to remember as well, that the Eighth Commandment, to, to break the Eighth Commandment is as easy as it is to breathe or to sweat in the middle of July. It is exactly one of the one of the, if there's ever a question of whether or not we have fallen short of the glory of God, it is the eighth commandment. And we see it broken here, and he responds in a holy way, saying, That's a lie. That is not true. And I love how he ends verse nine. And I want to get your thoughts on it. He says, But now, O God, strengthen my hands. What is Nehemiah doing at the end of this verse? Well, he's praying, and uh, he's praying to the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, although the words, oh God, are not in the Hebrew text, uh, but now strengthen my hands, the, the context and uh, the context, the wider context of Nehemiah uh, shows that this is definitely Nehemiah's uh, MO, this is his prayer life, he's constantly doing this. Um, it is humanly impossible to follow the word and will of God. We do not have enough strength in us. And uh, when we realize that, it can drive us to despair or it can drive us to our knees. And it drives us to our knees as Christians, knowing that we have an outside source, or uh, as the theologians would say, an extra nos, outside of us source. And that is the strength and the power of the one true God. Throughout the, uh, throughout the pages of the Psalms, the uh, different psalmists, the different writers are praying that God would be our strength, our tower, our rock, our fortress, uh, and on and on and on. And that is exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. Uh, he, he is not a superhuman. He is a poor, miserable sinner, just like all the rest of us. And he needs the strength that comes from God and that strength that comes from God through the commands and promises of his word. That's what he's clinging to. He knows it. He acknowledges it. And uh, he teaches us in the same way in verse 9. And one of the, I saw one commentary speak um, on this and saying that Nehemiah does a lot of arrow prayers. It's just this very, you know, like a bow and arrow that goes right to the target and says it's very succinct, it's very short, but it cuts to the heart was how he was talking about that. And why is that important for us as Christians to have these, I guess you would say, arrow prayers in the midst of our vocational life and what we're doing as Christians? Well, you know, God's Word teaches us that we should 
pray without ceasing. And if we relegate our prayer life to the the formality of worship on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night, then most of our day, most of our week, most of our life goes without prayer. And so if we are formed and shaped, not only by the divine service and the gifts that God gives us there, but formed and shaped by his word, then in any and every situation, that word that has formed and shaped us will give us the words so that we can offer the right prayer at the right time or that we can make the good confession when it's called for. And Nehemiah is doing both. I find it interesting, too, how important these are in those moments where, like you said, if somebody breaks the Eighth Commandment about me, um, about us, we instantly want to go into attack mode. So this might be a good example of when we are dealing with something like this, or even when we maybe have broken the Eighth Commandment, which you said is so easy to do, that this is a perfect time for us to do those kind of prayers, and a perfect one is right here. But you, oh God strengthen my hands. I think this is like maybe the eighth commandment prayer as we go through our lives is, Lord, give me strength to say the right words. As you said, the fruit of the spirit um, of, of self-control, that this is a good prayer for us as we go through our daily walk. Uh, last last thoughts. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, if, uh, if this is an issue for any of our hearers, and there's a good chance that it is, if uh, you struggle with this whole Eighth Commandment, uh, putting the best construction on everything, building up our neighbor instead of tearing down, if you go on social media on your computer, then take a little post-it note and write out the Eighth Commandment and stick it up in the corner. So the first thing you see when you look at your computer screen is the Eighth Commandment. Uh, you're going to have to make it a little smaller if you do that with your um, uh handheld device or your uh, cell phone, but it's the same thing. Those, those little reminders of God's word. And here, this is a very law thing. God's word of law can sometimes keep us from getting in trouble rather than spend the next several hours or several days trying to get out of trouble. Very good. As the, as, the, as the law forms us and leaves us, moves us forward in our vocations. Absolutely. So, Pastor, uh, I, I'm ready to move on. Any last thoughts before we move on? Nope, I think we're good. All right. We'll read verses 10 and go through 10 through 14. We'll go all the way through 14. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleiah, son of Methodable, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Such such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sam Ballot had hired him. Actually, I'm going to stop there, Pastor. So you have, a, you have a person that shows up and tells them, hey, let's meet in the temple. What's happening here? Well, the, the uh, continuation of trying to deter Nehemiah from his job, to deter Nehemiah and the task of completing the wall around Jerusalem continues when, uh, when the 
five attempts to uh, get Jeremiah out of the city or to get him uh, get his name torn down when all these things fail then uh, uh, now now really uh, there's just a couple of seconds left on the clock seriously and uh, this is this is it this is the last resort and so this this crazy thing that's going on here with regard to this Shemaiah who's confined to his home you know there have been uh, many Many trees have given their life and many gallons of ink have been spilt on uh, speculating on why Shemaiah was a shut-in. Mm-hmm. And they could have been a political prisoner, could have been something with his health. You know, we we just don't know. And so the, the speculation here is kind of foolish. But Shemaiah has connections to the temple. And so it is the continuing thing to try to get Nehemiah to think that his life is in danger and that Nehemiah's life is more important than the word of God, that Nehemiah's life is more important than the people of God, that Nehemiah's life is more important than the job that God has sent him to do to rebuild Jerusalem and especially the wall. And so this continuing plot that is here is to get Nehemiah to think that he is still in danger. Maybe he'll have to become a political prisoner if that's why Shemaiah is, or if he needs sanctuary in the temple to protect his life. They want him to be a coward. They want him to be a scaredy cat, and they want him literally to break the word of God by putting his life above everything else, that uh, instead of fearing, trusting, and loving in God above all things, he would fear, love, and trust in his own hide, in his own skin, above all things. And in verse uh, 12, I understood and saw that God had not sent him. How did he know that? Because what they were asking him to do was clearly in violation of the word of God. You've said it before, Nehemiah is a layman. Mm-hmm. The layman could not enter into this particular part of the temple where they wanted him to go. They were asking him to violate the word of God and to put his skin, his neck, his life above the word and the will of God. And this is a good reminder for us that how do we know this is from the Lord versus not from the Lord, whether it's a request from a friend, whether it is some kind of ethical question, um, whatever it might be for us as Christian people, the number one question is, does this line up with God's word? You know, someone says, I think we should do this, and it's a clear um, denial of the word of God, then it is not from God. This is not from God himself. Any thoughts on how that relates to our lives today and how we try to live according to God's word? Well, I think the biggest thing is uh, most of us do not know the Word of God very well. We know it superficially. We know certain catch Bible verses or catch sections of Scripture, and we do not spend enough time in God's Word so that when situations in life happen, and we should be able to, by the power of the Holy Spirit who brings these things to mind, we our quiver is empty. Because we spend so little time in the Word of God. 
And so this is, uh, this is God's encouragement for us right here. The only way that we can know for sure what the will of God is, is to read, study, learn, and inwardly digest the Word of God. We are so enamored with wanting to know what the will of God is for my life, mm. and we're willing to say that the Word of God says things that it doesn't say, should I stay in Nebraska or should I move to Minnesota? Ayo, ayo. Uh, well, there's no clear Word of God that says that God will bless me in one and curse me in the other, so I'm free. And we are afraid of the freedom that God gives us in his word. And we are ignorant of what God teaches us to do and not to do in his word. So this is God's exhortation to us to read the Bible. Amen to that. And that is a, a, a and that's why we have KFUO. That's why we have our local parish, even better, where you're able to be in the Word of God, to study the scriptures, ask your pastor any question you wish about Holy Scripture, and to be able to say, What is the will of God? What does God want for my life? And one one of uh, one of my laity at my first congregation said, You're not called to be uh, an emotion in- inspector. Like, and he was just a wonderful Christian man. And he's kind of like, the goal is not to determine how this feels for you, but what does God's word have to say? So don't be an emotion inspector, be a person of the word. What do you think of that quote, Pastor? Uh, I love it. And uh, we are emotional people. Uh, you know, we, the reason why people can talk about sports, you know, and we've been talking about college football, but the reason why people can do that is an emotional thing. Mm-hmm. And we are emotional people and emotions are good. The thing is, is we can't let our feelings and emotions trump or supersede the word of God. The word of God forms and shapes our feelings and our emotions. It's easy to get the order out of whack. And we do not, as as Bible-believing Lutheran Christians, we do not deny uh, feelings and emotions. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we're not pietists. We don't let those feelings and emotions drive the ship. Or quarterback the team. There you go. All right. All right. Keep track here, folks. It keeps coming. Um, So as we look at that, we are very much so seeing a man who was formed and shaped by the word of God in Nehemiah. So right now, um, he realizes this, this guy is not from God. So how does he respond? Verses 13 and 14. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So, Pastor, I want to make sure we, we, at the very very end, we have a question about the prophetess and and how this all works. But I want to make sure we get to verse 13, and is, is that it is clear that he has the word of God right on his lips, just like you prayed today. We want this word of God right on our lips that we may believe it. And how does, and it's wonderful, how does he respond to this, these accusations and really a temptation to go against God's word? Well, the accusations continue to come, and once again, he speaks the truth. He speaks the truth in love. 
he exposes them for what they are, and he literally turns the tables on them. This is this is the uh, dramatic irony that's going on. A few verses earlier, they had uh, this unholy trinity of uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. They had accused Nehemiah of hiring prophets to stir up the people and preach a false message. And now what have these three done? They have hired Shemaiah and all kinds of prophets, including this Noadiah, um, to preach and prophesy lies. They are doing the exact thing that they had accused Nehemiah of doing. And Nehemiah exposes it and uh, doesn't give him any more credence than it deserves. He exposes him and then just moves on with life. Verse 14, he continues to pray, but his prayer is a little different here. He doesn't say, oh, Lord, or oh God, strengthen my hands. He says, remember Tobiah and Sambalat and Noadiah. What kind of prayer is this? How would you define this if someone asked you? Uh, well, it's an imprecatory prayer, uh, like the imprecatory psalms that we generally skip over on Sunday mornings. <laughs> you know, the kind of psalms that are like, uh, Lord, uh, you know my enemies. Uh, Lord, you know my enemies. Smite them to hell. Amen. <laughs> and uh, um, if 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 any if any of our hearers are pastors and they uh, they had any classes at the St. Louis Seminary with uh, uh, Dr. Brighton, mm-hmm. they know very very well because Dr. Brighton would pray these kind of prayers all the time at the beginning of class. Um, these these are good prayers. They are important prayers. God knows who our enemies are. God knows uh, that uh, when we are in trouble. And to pray for justice against those who are attacking God, his word, and his people, it's a God-pleasing thing. We don't take matters into our own hands. We let that justice up to God. But um, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. And uh, it's okay to pray to God to remember who he is. And this is important. Not only should we know with the word of God, but to allow the Word of God to speak the way it speaks, not trying to um, numb it down or try to make or kind of gum people to death. That's one of my favorite quotes. When you have the Word of God, it's supposed to bite into you, and we remove the teeth and just kind of gum it. You know, we keep saying it, but we don't try to make it not so harsh. And here it's very clear. He's not asking for the Lord um, to, like, you know, make these guys nicer. No, he wants them to be, the vengeance to be upon these guys. Now, with that, Pastor, I wanted to make sure we cover one reality here. Is it mentions a prophetess. And we see this throughout the Bible. We see this in Second Kings, if I remember correctly. Um, and, and, and there's other parts in the Old Testament. We see a prophetess. And this seems a little bit off as we, as we see what the Lord brings to us as far as understanding of prophets and pastors and other leaders and teachers to be men. Um, but here we have a prophetess. So what, how would you describe this or talk about this in Bible study or to your parishioners? Well, it's it's one of those things that it's kind of catchy, and it, it's a kind of cutting edge, kind of like, oh, the Da Vinci Code was Jesus married. And I think people have given these kind of things far more attention than they need. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, a prophetess, that name prophetess, is simply the title given to the wife of a prophet. 
and uh, means nothing more than that. Uh, you know, we have Deborah, who's uh, called a prophetess, but she was a military leader, and she was a military leader only because the men failed to be men and do what they were charged to do. We don't know anything about this Noadiah. The only thing we know is that she preached lies. She was a false prophet. Now, was she a false prophet because she was a female and whatever came out of her mouth was to be uh, ignored? Or was she a false prophet because of the actual words that came out? We don't know. There is an excellent section in the uh, Concordia Publishing House commentary on Ezekiel by Horace Hummel. And in that uh, commentary, there is a long excursus about prophetess in the Old Testament, and how does this relate to the ordination of women? And if anybody has any questions on that, that is the go-to place. Uh, it says it better than you can possibly imagine and uh, is firmly grounded in the truth of Scripture and the Lutheran Confessions. Now, I believe we have two of these, Ezekiel 1 through 20 and Ezekiel 21 through 48. Do you know offhand which one it is in? Uh, I want to say that it is in the first one. Okay. And um, I think it's in... And I'm just checking my notes here. I can't read my scribblings, but I think it's in that first commentary on Ezekiel, and it's in reference to Ezekiel 13. Okay. okay. Ezekiel 13. Very good. That's the best I can give you off the top of my head. I love it. I love it. Thank you very much, because that's a very important subject, and clearly today— there would be no, hopefully there'd be no um, promotion of women's ordination based on Noadiah. I mean, she's the one speaking lies. This would not be a good argument if you were doing that. Um, but it, it does show us there's evil among all of us, not just some mean man or something, that there's evil among all of us in the world. And that's why, once again, we need to know the word of God. So now we get to a turning point in verse 15, because at this point, I think it's Nehemiah 6 and the enemy 0. Is that the scorecard that you have, Pastor? Yes, and uh, uh, I don't know if they're going to go for two uh, or if they're going to kick the traditional point, but yes, you are absolutely right. All right, so let's continue on because now it comes to the completion of the wall. So we will finish out chapter 6. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, LU, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, the son of Jehonanan, taken, had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And they spoke also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So, interesting way to end this when the wall is finished. What's happening in these verses? Well, you know, if you, if you can't uh, stop your opponent in any other way, uh, go to his family and start messing up with uh, the things that are going to happen at the uh, Thanksgiving dinner, uh, 
or at the next family reunion. You, you've got all this uh, marriage and family kind of drama. It's really hard. You know, you'd, you need a commentary and about five different illustrations and pages to keep all of this kind of stuff straight. <laughs> they, they are attacking Nehemiah politically. They are attacking him from within. They are attacking him with false prophets. And now, now they're going to all this, all these people who are married and intermarried here, trying to set up some family drama as well. And none of it's going to work. Everybody, all of the enemies know that while God used humans to do the work, this was a divine work. This was God at work through the instruments of Nehemiah and the construction workers. There is no way they could have completed this task in 52 days. This, uh, this wall had uh, been uh, in shambles or um, no maintenance had taken, taken place on this wall for about 140 years. Mm-hmm. And then to repair it and to complete it, in 52 days, um, this is uh, th- this is kind of like building the ark when you don't have any cranes or fancy tools. This is God at work, and everybody knew it, and everybody that saw this had to either be in awe of Nehemiah's God or to dig their heels in even deeper to fight against God. And that's what Tobiah continued to do. They're trying to make Nehemiah afraid, and he's going to continue on till the end of the book. It seems to me that he is fighting something like the game is over, and he's still wanting to go out there and play the game and to antagonize everybody in the process. And ultimately, it just fails over and over because, well, the Lord is on his side, not himself. Um, and so Isn't that what Satan does, though? Absolutely. The game is over. Christ is risen from the dead, oh, but he doesn't stop. That's a great connection. Thank you. For, thank you for that. I wanted to highlight one thing, and we have about three minutes left before our end of our time, is this whole um, understanding of trying to make him afraid. And I looked up this understanding of being afraid in the scriptures, and I realized that this could become a PhD thesis if I tried, um, which I'm not going to try. Um, but continually throughout the Bible, it is God who says, do not be afraid. He says it to Abram, Genesis 15. He says it to Moses, Numbers 21. He says it to Joshua, chapter 1. He says it to Gideon, Judges, chapter 6. Isaiah, he says it eight times throughout the whole scriptures. And Jesus says it to disciples on the boat when he's walking on the water. Do not be afraid. Why is fear, as is talked about here, such a uh, strong reality for human people, humanity, and why is this something that God continually has to remind us, do not be afraid? We have about two minutes left, Pastor. Well, fear is a, a definite tool of Satan. Fear is a, a consequence of the fallen world. It's a consequence of the uh, sin that lives and dwells inside of us. And everyone by nature has themselves, me, myself, and I, as their idol. And anything that puts me, myself, and I at risk causes fear. Look at what's going on in the world over the last 15 months or so. And you know how fear drives the ship. And people use fear to motivate and manipulate people. Whenever anything big is going to happen in Scripture, 
God sends a messenger. And the first message out of the messenger's mouth is fear not, fear not. This is why God has given you a pastor. Something big is going on in this world. It's called you. And God wants you to spend eternity with him in heaven. And so God gives you a messenger to preach to you the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation through the life bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus. Because your sins are forgiven and your name is written in the book of life, you can literally fear not. You're free. You can live your life. And that, I think sometimes that is a major message of books like Jeremiah or Nehemiah that get, ma- get missed. Mm. Nehemiah is a Christ figure. Nehemiah is appointed by God. They want to take him outside the city gates and kill him. False prophets rise up against him. And what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah is perfect in his obedience to God. In the same way that Jesus is perfect, perfect in his obedience to the will of the Father to take away our sin through his life, death, and resurrection. Pastor Clint Poppy of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, giving us the strong word from Nehemiah chapter 6. Pastor Poppy, thank you again for being our guest. Yeah, it was great fun. And, uh, you know, maybe next time we can do hockey or basketball or something like that. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Thank you again. <laughs> saints, saints of our Lord, be like Nehemiah. We hear those words, be not afraid. And we pray the Lord would keep us strong, our hands strong in the Lord to pray with all season. And he would strengthen us through all things, break evil from our lives to keep our mouths pure and for us to continue to look at Christ. I'm your host, Brady Finn and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.